Good morning, everyone. We are going to be in 1 John chapter 5 this morning. This Sunday and next Sunday will be our final sermons from the first letter of John to the churches who he was writing to. The series has gone pretty fast in my estimation, but thankful for it. As you're turning there, I wanted to invite you to return and worship with us for the four Sundays of Advent plus Christmas morning, because for those five Sundays, we're going to be preaching through the book of Ruth. So I think that'll be a unique and worshipful Advent um, book from the Old Testament to see the expectation, the waiting for a coming king, even through the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and the rest of the crew. So, again, that'll start the Sunday after Thanksgiving. That's the first Sunday of Advent. And the day before, as Lovey said, is Christmas decorating in here. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for your goodness to us. Who are we that you should be merciful to us, much less gracious to us? that you would withhold your hand of punishment, thank you, but that you would then bestow grace upon grace upon grace in the face of Jesus Christ eternally, Lord, thank you. Would you this morning, through the work of your Spirit, stir our hearts to gratitude, towards wonder, to awe, that we might look on the beautiful face of Jesus and worship him. Thank you, Lord, for being here with us this morning. We offer ourselves to you today. Amen. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer writes this. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, does that make you perk up your ears a little bit? If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes or she makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his or her father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his or her worship and prayers, and his or her whole outlook on life, it means that he or she does not understand Christianity very well at all. Again, he says, find out how much he or she makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his or her father. I believe I came to understand God as my loving father, though I think he saved me when I was very young, I don't think the nickel dropped for me to really understand the reality that he was my loving father and I as his eternally loved and forgiven child during the fall of my junior year in college. See, I had lived under self-condemnation for close to two and a half years. And then through, through the preaching of the reality that God 
for the Christian is their father and we as Christians are his kids released a burden off of my back that rolled into the grave. My understanding of the father's love for his kids took on more visceral and crimson depths on April 15, 2005, when early that morning, our firstborn, Simeon, took his first breath, covered in amniotic fluid and blood. He was ours, and we, as his parents, Nat and I, were his. I danced that morning in the delivery room. Spiritual rebirth is central to John's theology. Perhaps you've caught that throughout this series. Perhaps you've caught that when you've read through the Gospel of John. Christians are children of God. In John 3, Jesus told Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Do not marvel that I said to you, Nicodemus, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. A few things to recognize about spiritual rebirth. Spiritual rebirth is just as necessary as physical birth. If you don't have a physical birthday, you're not a human. If you have not been born again, you are not a Christian. Does that mean that there needs to be a specific day, a specific time, when you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that that's the time when you went from death to life? That's the time where you left the spiritual birth canal full of spiritual blood and amniotic fluid. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Some people do know that or think they know that. I think I know that. But to be honest, only God truly knows that. So you may be saying, I, I don't really have that date. I think that's kind of what Ben was communicating. And even through talking with Ty, what he was communicating. For some, there is a long labor, let's put it that way. And you might remember the labor pains and then the life that came after more concretely, more viscerally than the actual rebirth. That's okay. However, spiritually, the reality is there is still a born-again moment, time. That's called regeneration or spiritual rebirth from death into life. Spiritual rebirth is just as necessary as physical birth. It's also just as real and mysterious as physical birth. Leading up to that time when Simeon was born, first of all, he was two weeks late. And his first time parents, you just don't know what it's going to be like when things start happening. So you kind of wait and you think, well, we, she's obviously very pregnant. Is this going to happen? What's it going to be like when it does? And then all of a sudden, things start happening. 
We don't know when labor will ultimately lead to a new baby, but it does always lead to new life. We don't know where or when the Spirit will blow to bring new birth, but he does inevitably create new spiritual life. Spiritual rebirth is also a gracious gift of God, just as physical birth is a gift from God as well. The beginning of the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, verse 12, John writes this, But to all who did receive him, this being Jesus, the light of the world, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor even of the will of man, but solely the will of God. That is grace at its greatest depths. The grace at the most mysterious for those of us who are Christians. Why did God, in fact, give me new birth? Why did he show grace to my soul? However, as you know, there isn't a birth certificate with little inked footprints to certify our spiritual rebirth. In essence, 1 John is a letter to Christians to offer assurances that they are, in fact, born of God. Observable measures to reveal spiritual identity. As David preached last week from the first, last part of 1 John 4, the beginning of 1 John 5, he mentioned that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, this is verse 1, you're probably there in 1 John 5, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Further, in verse 2, it says, or at the second half of verse 1, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So it's individuals born into a new family, and the rest of the people in that family are those who have also been born of God. And all, they, all of them together have God as their father. When they've been born of God, they begin to love the father. It's another mysterious thing about childbirth in those early years is how those connections of love happen between baby and parents. It happens for the Christian as well. There is an increase in love for the father and for his siblings. Some of you might say, I, I didn't have as much love for my siblings as I had for my parents. It's okay, there's sanctification for that. Thirdly, verse 2, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. As we saw in 1 John 3, he said, This is the new commandment. Trust in the name of Jesus Christ and love one another. To which he says here, at the end of verse 3, his commandments are not burdensome. These are commandments from a father who has given birth, who has birthed new children of his own, and he doesn't load on them a bunch of chores to maintain their identity in the family. Instead, he says, these are your identifying markers. You trust your greater brother, Jesus, and you love your brothers and sisters. That's family life for the Christian. 
to which John's readers here might respond, his beloved children who he addresses a number of times in that way throughout the letter. Here's the thing, John. All of those secessionists, they seem to be born of God before too. If you haven't been with us throughout the series, there is this underlying group of people that has been troubling the church. These people, we've been calling them secessionists. They've ones, they're ones who were part of the church, and now they have left the church. And the churches that John is writing to, they're wondering, what gives? Why would they leave? How do we understand their departure? What does this mean for their souls and also for ours? And John's kids that he's writing to, his spiritual kids, might be saying, our friends, even our family, that they were part of our churches. They seemed like they were also born of God at one point. They believed in Jesus. At least we thought that they did. They, they say still that they love the Father. And they say still that they love one another. They even, even kind of loved us. They've continued relationships with us. And they're encouraging us to come and believe in Jesus the way they believe in Jesus. John, they're troubling the church. What do we make of this? To which this text answers with a few overcoming truths. Overcoming truths for children who are troubled. Let me read to you the entirety of our text this morning. 1 John 5, verses 4 through 12. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. A few overcoming truths for children who are troubled. First of all, in verse 4a, John tells them, trust this, those born of God overcome the world. They are on the right side of world history, ultimately. They may be feeling the world's pressures. They may be feeling the flesh's pressure from the inside. They may be attacked by the evil one. But those born of God overcome the world. Their beginning was from God. By grace, he gave them new birth. 
and their future will be with God. In fact, they will outlive the world. Overcoming has a secure destination. Those born of God overcome the world. Bank on it. Second truth. We look at verse 4, second half. Those born of God overcome the world by their faith. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. One way to, to, um, to say that verse again that's in a, in, in a different um, interpretation, a different translation is, this is the victorious power that is victorious over the world. There's a, there's a power, there's a fuel for our overcoming the world. That fuel, that power is our faith. If you are born of God, you have a power, you have a fuel that will bring you to that destination, that overcoming place. Those born of God overcome the world by their faith, no matter how strong the world feels outside of them or inside of them. Number three, according to verse five, they overcome the world because their faith is in Jesus, the Son of God. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Did you notice that he doesn't just say the one who believes in Jesus? He says specifically this, the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the crux of the issue. Those born of God believe not just in an ambiguous Jesus. They believe specifically that Jesus is the Son of God. This seems to be what the secessionists were pushing against. They were soliciting an ambiguous Jesus. They were trying to sell him to the church. It is why they had left the church. It's because their Jesus was something of their own creation. Jesus is the Son of God, God in the flesh, not just a God or not just a man. Back in chapter 4, verse 2, it says this, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. There's the issue, the in the fleshness. Were these people being um, swayed by kind of a platonic understanding of spiritual realities that the spiritual is the is the ultimate and the flesh is just kind of evil and to be discarded so jesus if he is really going to do anything for us can't be both god and man because man is inherently in his flesh broken of the earth not of heaven Well, John's saying just the opposite. He's saying in order to truly believe a full Jesus, he has to be the incarnate one, God in the flesh. 
So those born of God overcome the world. They overcome the world by their faith. And they overcome the world because their faith is in Jesus, the Son of God. Which points us back to John 16, 33, where Jesus himself said, In this world, you will have tribulation. You will feel the pressures. But take heart, I have overcome the world. How could these people know How could John assure them that they will actually overcome? Because the overcoming is not ultimately on them. It is on the object of their faith. They are assured victory because their faith is in the victorious one. He has established, he has won a vicarious victory. And in Jesus, they are also victors. They are also overcomers. He will get them to that destination. We continue on to verses 6 through 8, where truth number 4, three witnesses agree that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Let's read these verses again. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water, and the blood. And these three agree. Admittedly, this is a difficult passage to interpret. All right? But I think we can get somewhere with it. All right? What is John doing here? Well, first of all, he's confronting, seems to be confronting the secessionist heresy. They had given up on who Jesus actually is. When we see here that John says, not by the water only, it seems that the secessionists may have believed that Jesus was a real dude, and Jesus historically was baptized, and also baptized. We see this in the beginning of the Gospel of John. If these people were in churches where John was kind of the spiritual father, they were probably pretty well versed in the Gospel of John itself probably had even heard the teachings directly from John, as he infers in chapter 1. So these secessionists may have looked back at the beginning of John and said, yeah, all good, we believe Jesus was baptized, and also that he baptized. Second of all, they may even say that we have shared in the Spirit, thinking, yeah, we have shared in the Holy Spirit. According to 1 John 4.1, John writes this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. It seems from that passage, like these people that had left were saying, yeah, Jesus was baptized, he was a baptizer, we have been baptized, and, you know, you can't really see the spirit, right? It just kind of blows where it will. We're pretty sure we got the Holy Spirit too. Who are you to put a dividing line between us and them, or us and yourselves. They might have even cited Jesus' words to Nicodemus, where he says, you must be baptized with water and the Spirit. Yeah, we have been baptized with water, and we've got the Spirit. That's all that we need for eternal life, right? But John says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water 
and the blood. What were they missing? The blood. Jesus was really God in the flesh, fully God and fully man. Would you consider the purity of Jesus' blood? How does that work physiologically? I don't know. The incarnation is a mystery. One thing we can know is that Jesus was perfect through and through, including his blood. Yet these people are dismissing the blood by saying that Jesus did not really come in the flesh. They were saying there was no blood to be offered for sin. But see, that flesh, the flesh of Christ, the incarnate one, had blood. And that blood, as we're going to see, was critical to his sonship, to who he was in relation to the Father. So whatever these secessionists believed about Jesus, they dismissed his blood. Therefore, the Jesus they believed in, even if in some way they might have called him, the Son of God was not a complete son. So in this hard-to-interpret passage, John is confronting the secessionist heresy, and then he presents irrefutable testimony that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. First of all, he says, by water, yes, and then we'll also throw the Spirit in there for the sake of helping us go through this passage. Listen to this real quick. If we go back to the Gospel of John, I'm going to take you through three passages. You can turn there if you want. If not, just get your ears on. First of all, in John 1, 32 through 34, this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is when the baton is being handed off between John the baptizer and Jesus. The next day, John, the baptizer, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And John concludes by saying, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Jesus, yes, was baptized. And here we see in this short narrative the reality that we actually have the water, the Spirit, and the blood. 
in the waters of baptism, we know that God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. We saw the spirit come down on him. We hear the testimony of John himself saying, this is the son of God. And what did he say first? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is foreshadowing sacrifice and blood. We turn over to the next chapter, two chapters on actually. Not only was Jesus baptized, but Jesus also baptized. This is chapter 3, verses 25 through 36. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. So John had disciples. Now those disciples are actually going and following Jesus. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Grace. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him he rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He is of the earth. Belongs, he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So in this picture here of John decreasing as his disciples go to Jesus, he says, Jesus must increase. Furthermore, he says the reason why is because he's been sent from heaven. I'm of the earth. He's of heaven. The Holy Spirit has been given in full to him. And he speaks from what he has seen in heaven. His testimony is true, and it must be received. If it's not, if it's not, then you're discounting where he came from. You're dismissing that the Father himself sent him to us. And if you have not received him, then you don't actually know the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And then with foreshadowing of what we've seen in 1 John, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Do you see how the Son is at the center? He's not an option to consider within the Trinity. He's not someone who just came and was a wise teacher, maybe even a mysterious worker of miracles. 
Jesus is the Son of God. To, to say anything less is to dismiss him and in fact dismiss God entirely. This is who Jesus is. The, the Son loved by the Father and eternal life is in his hands. Well, at this point, people were still following Jesus en masse. They liked what he was doing. They liked what he was saying. Even the, he had just spoken to Nicodemus about being born of the water and of the spirit. That's pointing back to the book of Ezekiel. When, Jesus, when, when the father tells the spirit, I'm sorry, says through Ezekiel that I will sprinkle them with cleansing water and cleanse them from their sins and I will give them new hearts. They had hearts of stone. I'm going to take those out of them Give them hearts of flesh. This is the promise of the new covenant. As it says in Hebrews 9, the old covenant is passing away because it had a problem with it. It could not actually save. But there has been a new covenant that has been established by a priest who has never finally died and will live forever. And he continues to make intercession for us his people. That was a bit of a rabbit trail. But it's a rabbit trail that, Lord willing, gives us a fuller understanding of Christ. And even what is happening here in John, that people were following him. But that's not where things ultimately lead. Because as John the baptizer said, you have to receive his words about himself because the Spirit has given them to him. So after he feeds the 5,000 in John chapter 6, they run around the sea after he leaves to find him because they, they want more food to eat. And this is what he says in John 6, 53 through 56. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man... And drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Jesus is saying here, the reality of feeding on me, feeding on who I am, feeding what I brought to bring full reconciliation with God, full forgiveness from sin. To, to feed on me is to say, yes, I need you like food could never fill me. I have a hunger that's deeper than when I wake up in the middle of the night and my stomach is growling. Because chances are when you wake up in the middle of the night, spiritual questions come to mind. Worries and anxieties, guilt, shame, you're thinking, how do I deal with these? And Jesus says, come to me. I will fill your spirit. I will revolutionize your soul with my body and my blood. I will give you a new heart. You can drink in a way where that living water will never run dry. Speaking of water, I'll finish our time in the book of John before we jump back to 1 John. 
In chapter 7, Jesus says this, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Spirit has said, out of his heart flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. John presents irrefutable testimony that Jesus is the Son of God. Through the water of his baptism, through the water that he baptized with, through the Holy Spirit that came down upon him, through the Father's testimony, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. But it was not the water only, but by the water and the blood. In chapter 6, what I did not read to you is that after he said these things, guess who left him? Many, many, many of his disciples. They seceded from the group of disciples because they could not handle his teaching about his blood. The blood of Jesus at the cross is always the dividing line between those who are born of God and those who are not. Want to know if you are truly born of God? What do you do with a bloody Savior? What do you do with a bloody Savior? Because the cross reveals some things. Jesus was truly human. He bled out. Which means we must account for our humanness. For our sins done in the body. For the sin that we know goes all the way to the depths of our hearts. We can't dismiss the body. We must account for it. The cross also shows us that Jesus was truly perfect. He died perfectly. Which means we can't dismiss our sin. He was unjustly crucified for those who justly should be under the judgment of God. The cross also shows us that Jesus truly died for sinners, which means that sinners deserve death. Yet for many, perhaps you, this is an inconvenient truth that we try to explain away. Oh, that was just, that was just divine child abuse. How could a father do that to his son? In Hebrews, it tells us that Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before him. This was the Trinity's plan from the beginning of creation, from before creation, to redeem a people through himself by self-sacrifice. What love, what blood. As David talked to us about last week, there's this reality of propitiation. In Hebrews where it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness or remission of sin. It's talking about this propitiation reality. 
that every human, because we are all in sin, is under the just wrath of God. However, but there is this reality, the greatest reality of all, that Jesus was sent by the Father to die for us. To take our place, to be our substitute. So the the reality of propitiation is that though we were under the wrath of God, Jesus took the wrath of God so that the wrath could not just be satisfied, but that the Father's attitude, view towards us would be eternal favor. Wrath turned to favor. See, propitiation is central to the sonship of Jesus. And if there was no blood in Jesus, if he was not actually of the flesh, he would not have been able to provide the, sa- the sacrifice that was necessary to purify our flesh. One cannot claim Jesus or the Spirit or the Father without the blood of Christ. Listen to what John said back in chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son. Why? To be the propitiation for our sins. He sent his son. That's why his sonship is at the crux of this issue that John is addressing about the secessionists, and it is the crux of the issue for us. The sonship of Christ. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So propitiation, the blood of Christ, his fleshness, demonstrates he is truly the son. And it demonstrates that you and I can truly be sons and daughters of his as well. Propitiation is central to the sonship of Jesus, and it's also central to our sonship. In fact, it is the perfect love of God expressed precisely at the cross that gives us freedom from fear of judgment and confidence before our living Father. His eternal wrath has been turned to eternal favor even as he is our eternal Father. J.I. Packer, again in Knowing God, wrote that if he were to focus the New Testament message in three words, he would choose adoption through propitiation. Sonship through sacrifice is another way to put it. Adoption through propitiation. And he says, I do not expect ever to meet a richer or more pregnant summary of the gospel than that. However, without the blood, there are no grounds for freedom from fear. No grounds for confidence before God, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Eternal wrath remains. The secessionists may have had their own version of Jesus, but he was not truly the Son. Every effort to whitewash Christianity of a bloody Jesus, those efforts are the same sorry song, different millennia. 
They want a godlike religion, complete with a semi-Christ and experiences of spirituality that are not from the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit brings conviction of sin, people. It's not all about raising our hands and getting the spiritual goose pimples. The Holy Spirit brings conviction of sin to those who do not know Christ. But for those who are, are, who are in Christ, gentle reminders. Ultimately, ultimately, this is where the roots of the world's anxieties lie. We were created with souls that innately, reverently fear God. But our sin has turned that reverent fear to rebellion, to rejection, and also to empty religion. To assuage our soul's fears by hating God or by appeasing him. Therefore, our lives and our loves, we pour them into buckets, trying to douse the internal fear of God, in a sense, baptizing ourselves, trying to douse this fear that we have of him inside, but these buckets are actually sieves, full of holes, unable to carry any spiritual weight or relief. If you do not know Christ this morning, hear this simply. He has died for you. There is no sin that he cannot cover. No addiction he cannot cleanse. There is no heart that is too hard or mind that is too foolish. May our prayer be that of John, that we would increase, that we would decrease and humble ourselves before the King of Kings, the Son of God, and look to Christ to be saved. What is John doing with our final verses here? Verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Did you just hear what John said? This is about the witnesses, the spirit, the water, and the blood. But who has put those witnesses together as testimony? The Father himself. He is saying, I have given you sufficient witness. I said... At his baptism, he is my son in whom I'm well pleased. The Holy Spirit came down and rested on him. Everything he did was perfect in every way. He went to the cross, bled out for you. He is my son. I love you so much that I sent him to save you by his sacrifice. To which we return to that original question. Do you know if you're born of God? John's churches may have been saying, these people, they were, they seem like they were. 
But hear this. This is the logic that John is putting together here. The one who has been born of God trusts this testimony because it is is the testimony of the Father about his Son. Faith, that is the victory in his Son. That testimony in those who are born of God resides in them through the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is constantly saying, look to Christ, believe the Father, look to Christ, believe the Father. You can be forgiven, you are forgiven, you are cleansed. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. The Father is saying, I've given sufficient testimony. Will you believe it? Whoever believes in the Son has the testimony in himself Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. To to ignore his testimony about his son is in effect to call God a liar. There is no other truth. There's no other way. There is no other life outside of the son. Yet to receive his testimony, to have it in us. God gave us eternal life, verse 11, and this life is in his son. This is our our current, for all those who are in Christ, this is our current situation. He has given us eternal life. Whoever has the son has life. That's a promise. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. That's a warning. Come to the Son. If you're a Christian, believe, remember, glory, worship, treasure the reality that we have Christ. What grace that the Son of God would die for us. For all those who are in Him, listen, just as the Father said, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. In Christ, the father says, you are my son, you are my daughter in whom I am well pleased. Just as the spirit came down and filled Christ, you have also thereby been filled with Christ. And just as Jesus bled out for you, his blood cleanses you from all sin, past, current, and future. Two things to think about when it comes out of this. Number one is this. If you've been born of God, you're a child of God. That means that there's a difference between punishment and discipline. Your family may use those words synonymously. Maybe your dad used those words synonymously or acted like he did. Biblically, there's an incredible difference. See, here's the thing. For the Christian, all their punishment, praise God, all the punishment that was due on me, the two and a half years that I lived under condemnation in college, all of that punishment went one place, to the cross. There is now 
no condemnation, no punishment, no judgment for anyone who was born of God. And because our identities have been radically changed by the new covenant, we are now children of God, with God as our loving, omniscient, perfectly delicate, yet intentional Father, who disciplines us so that we might share his holiness. Hebrews chapter 12. Who disciplines us because he counts us as sons, because our greater brother died for us. Therefore, he treats us in that way, disciplining us gently and out of love. Fully desiring to make us more and more like our greater brother, Jesus. If you're a Christian, don't walk under condemnation anymore. Your punishment fell on Christ. Trust his blood. If he could not die, or if he did not die for that sin, then he did not die at all for any sin. Yet he has. And he, his blood continues to speak a better word than anything your heart says to you. Trust his blood. And he gives us an assurance of eternal life. We will overcome. J.I. Packer, I've used him twice already. I'll finish up with one more thing that he says. He's with Jesus now, by the way. He passed away in 2020. What does it look like to walk together on that road towards Christ? He says this, The Christian secret of a Christian life and of a God-honoring life is this. Take the following truths. Say them over and over to yourself. First thing in the morning. Last thing at night. As you wait for the bus, anytime your mind is free, ask that you may be enabled to live as one who knows it is all utterly and completely true. One, I'm a child of God. Two, God is my father. Three, heaven is my home. Four, every day is one day nearer. Five, my savior is my brother. And six, Every Christian is my brother, too. Let's pray. Our Father, our brother, our spirit, we thank you, Holy Trinity, that by your grace, you've saved sinners. And as Joey prayed earlier, Lord, I pray that you would save sinners, that we would walk in the fullness of who you are, Jesus, in freedom from fear, fullness of sonship, because we are united with you. We praise your name, glorify it among us and in us.